Hi, good morning, everyone. It is Saturday and time for a special edition of Sustainable Short Takes and Updates. I am JJ Walsh, your host here in Hiroshima, Japan, and joined by... So I'm Toba Kinoka, and I'm based in Yokohama. And... And this is Shirley, and I am based in Yokohama as well now. <laughs> Brilliant. Welcome. And we're so jealous of your pool behind you. Oh, thank That's you. amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, we had a great uh, talk on the 21st last week with four amazing speakers. Joined by there, so Angela Ortiz, Ruth Marie Jarman, Noriko Shindo, and Trista Bridges, um, who are four of the speakers for the in-person event we're going to do in May. Um, so it was an opportunity to kind of learn a bit more about them and what they're doing um, and to hear about how they're engaging in sustainability work in very, very different contexts. And so we touched on kind of lots of different topics actually. Um, so uh, we talked about gender equality in companies in Japan at, at different levels of the organization. Um, Shirley, do you want to add anything on to that? Um, yeah, sure. So I would like to talk about uh, what Trista said. And yeah, I think I had a lot of notes from uh, what she was explaining and what she said about like sustainability, especially women in tech. And uh, she was talking a lot about like investment and uh, venture capitalist in investment. And that was something which was very interesting to me because it seems like um, something that's out of reach <laughs> for many women, I think, because it's like finance and it's something that, oh my gosh, it seems like we cannot really overcome that barrier. But and seeing somebody that seemed like was, a common theme, didn't it? That yeah. everybody was talking about doing lots of good work and uh, doing meaningful work. But the funding aspect, especially for women, is always challenging. So that was great to hear from Trista and Ruth and yeah. Angela as well about fundraising and getting funding, right? Yeah. And also all the books that Ruth has written. I was very impressed. I was like, okay, I wish I could read enough Japanese to read her books. I keep but, asking her to do an English version because she's got all these great Japanese books yeah. and and I do try, but it's, you know, she is an English speaker, so it'd be great to see an English version. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder if she also wrote like a manuscript in English as well. I keep asking her. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe sometimes she's a busy lady. Um, now, Shirley, you were part of an interesting event uh, last week, uh, diversifying tech and women in STEAM. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, sure. So it was a really fun event. It was very action packed. A lot of people attended, which was great. And um, yeah, it was organized by few. Uh, so few is um, it started as a group of women executives, but they then moved on to like w women all over <laughs> Japan for they, empowering women, right? Now, yeah, for yeah, empowering they, women. I've That's interviewed nice... them. I've interviewed them on the series too. So oh, you yeah. were you were talking about uh, tech, working in the tech industry. 
Yes, I was talking about, so I also work for uh, Wiki. I think I have spoken about Wiki before when me and JJ did a one-on-one. I was talking about how we use diplomacy to encourage entrepreneurship opportunities for women in India and Japan with the bilateral business council that we have and how like having better like bilateral relations would actually be good for you know sustainability would be good for uh, Japan as well as India so we had people from code chrysalis uh, we had speakers from code chrysalis uh, lay wagon they are both like coding boot camps and I've, I've also interviewed Yan Fan the founder of oh, code chrysalis yeah yeah that's cool wonderful yeah, this is a, a great sector that we need to invest more in uh, in Japan. And it seems like a lot of women are leading the way. So it's great to see that that movement in, in tech, more gender equity in IT. Let's hope. Fingers crossed. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah, I know. Female CEO, I think she's the CTO of Code Chrysalis, Yan Pan. Mm. So I'm like, way to go. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. Um, I had an interesting, to switch gears a little bit, I had an interesting talk last week with Kimiko Hirata, and she's the founder of Climate Integrate. It's been a while in the talk show series since I've talked to someone who's so focused on climate action in Japan, and she had so much great information in the talk, and she had this calendar of all the upcoming actions in Japan to watch out for in terms of uh, announcements about climate initiatives. Uh, She had all the different domestic as well as international events, uh, which she expects and is pushing for Japan to make stronger initiative announcements, which hopefully will move forward. She talked about um, her defunding coal uh, initiatives as an activist and uh, encouraging grassroots movement, as well as working with lawyers, as well as working with policymakers in government. She's doing such fantastic work. It was a real pleasure talking to her. Uh, Tova, did you want to talk about one of your topics? Yep. So I'll start with another climate-related um, one. So um, on when was it? Wednesday evening, I was uh, had the privilege of being invited to be on the judging panel for the Ocean Revival competition, um, along with a lot of other familiar faces. Angela Ortiz was also there, Robin Lewis, um, and uh, Guy Perryman as well. So sort of very much sort of part of the the community here. And um, so this is a really interesting organization. So Atlantic Pacific is an MPO based in the UK, but it started based on the experience of the founder in Kamaishi after the earthquake. So he he was, um, he's actually an architect by training, but has been um, a lifelong sailor. He lives uh, in, he's from Wales in the UK, um, grew up sort of sailing and been around boats. And he um came out on a research trip i think it was 2014 he said so a few years after the earthquake and they went to um kamaishi 
um, which was one of the first places hit by the tsunami, I believe, um, in 2011. So they went there to look at sort of reconstruction efforts and what was happening. And he was really shocked to hear that um, Japan doesn't have a, a sort of voluntary um, lifeguard organization. So in the UK, this is something we've had for centuries or more. I mean, it's a very, very long time. Every little village and town around the coast, because, you know, we're, we're an island right in the UK, just like here. So every little place has its volunteer life force and they'll have a lifeboat, people who have their day jobs, but they're trained up. So if there's an emergency, they get out there in their lifeboats and go and help. And he was really shocked to discover that Japan doesn't have this kind of organization. He's like, wow, okay. And he got talking to locals and about how it works in the UK. And they were like, oh, wow, this sounds really, you know, something we should have. So he said he, he found him, himself kind of in the heat of the moment in the discussion going, yeah, yeah, we can do this. And they're like, yes, but where would we keep a lifeboat? And he said, I can design you a lifeboat station. Then thinking, what on earth have I just said? So he was on the flight back to the UK just thinking, what have I promised and how on earth am I going to deliver this? Um, so he went back to the, um, the university in London where he was um, teaching, spoke to his boss there and said, look, you know, can we get students involved in this project um, in designing a lifeboat, first of all? Um, so they they did that and then they sort of started to look at how are they going to get the lifeboat to Japan it was going to be in a shipping container and then how are they going to store it and and so on once it got to Japan and so they were well he um, designed the shipping container that it was going in to actually become the lifeboat station um, which was brilliant so it's basically lifeboat in a box and this idea was born out of that um, so the Kamaishi one is the first one, and they've since um, created one in Lesbos and Greece um, to deal with the you know, well, help there with the um, refugee crisis, with lots of refugees coming over the Mediterranean. There've been horrendous, um, you know, stories of, of boats capsizing and, and people needing rescuing there. And so they they the idea is the MPO has this um, lifeboat in a box system, but they also train up the locals. To, to use it as well. So the, the, the community that um, receives it gets everything they need in this box, um, in sort of, but they also get the training as well so that they run it themselves. They take ownership of this and it becomes you know, their own thing. Um, and they also do camps. So they did a, a summer or a spring camp um, with local kids at Kamaishi High School and they were getting them involved in um, sort of uh, bringing in ocean plastic, sort of collecting that and then looking at how can this be repurposed? Um, because as you know, through their, their lifeboat work, they obviously are sort of seeing a lot of pollution and things when they're out on the ocean. So that was very much sort of in their minds. So they started looking at how they can do something to address that issue as well. So they've been working there um, on using the the plastic that they're collecting to um, repurpose it into life jackets and things. Wow. Um, but then they set That's up That's great thing. to hear. Yeah, such a wide variety of education, yeah. outreach, training, yeah. um, the practical level, as well as for the future, reducing yeah. plastic. Yeah. Um, there's always that discussion, isn't it, about uh, mm. organizations like the Ocean Cleanup, 
uh, reusing that ocean plastic yeah. in useful ways, there's a limit to how much you can reuse it. You can only yeah. make something once. And right. there's just a tiny, tiny amount that actually is reused in any meaningful way. Mm, um, so the, the main object, of course, is to reduce the amount that's going into the environment yes. at first. Um, oh, absolutely. That, that's that got to be priority. But um, it, it was really nice to hear the competition was open to anyone. Um, and the, the sort of they invited applications in and then sort of condensed those down. And we had three teams pitching their ideas to the, the panel of judges. And they're really creative. Like one team was working with the Precious Plastics um, organization to say, look, you know, we can identify the, the really usable plastics because like you say there's only some that really can be repurposed again so things like um the pet bottle uh plastic there which is you know a specific kind that can be reused um and looking to uh, use their prize money to to get the machine from the precious plastics that can create the the, the sheets of new plastic that they can then use to um they were going to make life boys because we discovered through their presentation, drowning is the third um, highest cause of death in under 15s globally. I did not know that. That was such a shocking statistic. Wow. That's um, shocking. Yeah. Um, but to swim, so. it sounds like a great initiative. I've put mm -hmm. the links in the comments so people can find mm -hmm. out more. Now, that brings me to a mm -hmm. uh, news point uh, starting this month. Japan's government is aiming to reduce single-use plastics, putting pressure on businesses which use a lot of the single-use plastics like straws, uh, cutlery like shown here, um, pressuring stores to have in-store collection boxes. So for the items that they sell in single-use plastic, which are difficult to recycle or reuse in any meaningful way, uh, all we should start seeing stores around Japan which have these collection boxes. So hopefully we'll start seeing reductions in how much is actually given to consumers in terms of single use. Uh, there was one organization that I, I found really interesting, um, which is now featuring some of their items you'll see in um, hotels around Japan. Hmm. It's called Meal Organic. Um, mm. So they have this like uh, wooden toothbrush, uh, wooden or paper uh, packaged uh, ear swabs. What do you call it? Ear cleaners. Yeah. Um, a, a nice cloth bag. Um, so instead of the usual single use plastic mm. um, that you would find in hotels, uh, more hotels are adopting this idea. And she, the founder of this organization, and she won an award um, for reducing single-use plastics. So that's wonderful to see this kind of initiative. And I'm really hoping a lot of hotels start to adopt this. I'm, oh, I'm staying in a hotel end of April, and I actually got in touch with them beforehand and said, I don't need any single-use amenities in my room um, because I, w I could just not use them. Mm. But I worry that once it's in the room, even if you don't use them, that they're yeah. thrown away. Yes. So okay. I always try to reach out to the hotel in advance and just say, I don't need them. Please don't put them in my room.
and uh, single-use plastic water bottles, uh, toothpaste, toothbrushes, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And they wrote back saying, oh, we understand. We'll definitely, we won't put any in. Thank you so much for letting us know. Oh, uh, wouldn't it be great if it just wasn't there in most hotels and you had to ask for it if you wanted it? Yeah. As well, right? Some are yeah. starting to do that, right? Because I've stayed in um, one, I'm trying to think which hotel it was recently in um, Tokyo in the Ginza area, um, just a, a sort of a very ordinary business hotel. But they now, when you check in, they said, oh, okay, if you want any of the amenities, they're over there. You can go and choose what you need, but they aren't in your room. Um, so I thought that that was you know, a step in the right direction. It's not just putting it there. And like you say, if they've been in the room, particularly in Corona time, right, it's odds are, you know, it might well get thrown away afterwards. But at least they say, you know, if you need anything, go and take it. Otherwise, there is nothing in your room. So I thought that that was at least a positive kind of shift. I wonder it, if it was LOF hotels, Tova, because I recently read mm. an article from Cynthia Usui, and yes. she manages LOF, and she just put an article like a few days ago where she said that the amount of reusable plastic is so much. They, they, I think they throw around 100 toothbrushes every single day, oh. and 100 is a big number. That's a lot. And yeah, if you go down, like she was just explaining that, yeah, she has moved more towards a sustainable like way so mm -hmm. there, there's going to be a cart when you check in and which has all these things and you take as much as you need but they wouldn't refill it every day for you or it's not inside if mm -hmm. you don't need it yeah and i think that's yeah. amazing that's so much better right there's that standard mm -hmm. uh if you leave your uh towels on the rack we won't replace them mm -hmm. uh you mm -hmm. can put a card on the bed if you don't need new sheets every day uh why not have all of the amenities at the front desk if you yeah. need them please ask for them yeah. and then they don't have to worry about replacing them even if they're unused <laughs> which seems so wasteful right yeah. and they do throw it i don't think they reuse it <laughs> if it's Fact <laughs> and then I I love to see the reusable shampoo and the body wash in the in the rooms. But I've heard from some people that they don't trust it. They feel mm. like other customers might put something bad in it. I don't think that happens. Wow. Um, but if you see the installed ones on the wall, that would be much harder mm. to add something to. If it's just a bottle and maybe you can unscrew it and yeah. So there are options that are better. Yeah. Let's just try to choose the better options from the business side as well as the consumer side. There are things we can do, right? Well, it's very, it's what we'd call in, in sort of change man management speak, it's, it's choice editing, right? So mm. you're not, you're, you're taking options away that people never knew were going to be there in the first place anyway. So you're just reducing their options or shif uh, shifting their options in a more positive direction. So it doesn't feel like you're pushing at all. They still have options, but that those options are edited. <laughs> so I think that's something that, you know, is fairly simple to do. Um, it just takes somebody to, to take that first step. Yeah. 
I'm showing the Japan Times article about this April new cabinet ordinance here. And they also talk about uh, it's not mandatory. So it is a recommendation. So there is a limit to how much effect we're going to see. But that there was a big reduction in the amount of single use shopping bags mm. once that rule came in. Although recently I'm seeing more people just pay the few yen yeah. and using those single use shopping bags again. So it seems like it's shifted back to just adding a cost to the consumer. Mm -hmm. That's not really the target of the initiative. The target is to reduce plastic. But I think we're lacking the awareness development side of it, right? Very much. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think if it's only a couple of yen as well, if you think about that as a, a proportion of the, the total bill, it, it's not enough to incentivize yeah. the chain, uh, you know, the change. So my daughter's always saying they should add on a couple of zeros to, you know, the price instead of saying two yen or five yen, it should be 50 or 200. <laughs> I, said, you know? I said to one of the managers at my local supermarket, I said, that that shopping bag you have for 10 yen, 5 yen, or 3 yen for different sizes, that should be 1,000 yen, yeah. 500 yen, 300 yen. And he's like, ha, ha, ha. And I was right. like, no, I, I really, really think that's true. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Then yeah. people might think a bit harder about it. But, um, yeah, definitely. Mm. Definitely. Uh, so I'll put the Japan Times. Oh, my camera's going. <laughs> uh, the Japan Times article. <laughs> New camera, guys. It's always fun. Uh, I will fix that in a second. Oh, no. It looks pretty cool, though. It looks cool. You can see outside my house now. Wonderful. Yeah, we might be able to spot your cats. Oh, my goodness. Um, okay. Uh, do you want to talk about books? Since we talked about Trista, do you want to talk about Leading Sustainably? Right. Yes. So, um Trista and her business partner, Donald Eubank, um, wrote this book. I think it was released last year, um, Leading Sustainably. So you can see there it's the path to sustainable business and how the SDGs changed everything. So if people are fairly new to sustainability and not sure where to start, this is such a useful read. It really gives you sort of a, a background on sort of the SDGs, where did that come from? What does this all mean? Puts it in context, really, really helpful there. But then they've got really well laid out frameworks, things like their, their five sort of steps of the um, sustainability journey, if you like, that an organization goes through the sort of stages of maturity from right at the beginning through to completely purpose-driven at the end. They've got lots of really helpful examples, um, sort of mini case studies, if you like, on different organizations to illustrate um, how that actually looks in an organization when they're, when they're shifting to bringing sustainability into core business. So they um, highlight a lot of groups like, um, for example, Sekisui House, um, one of the sort of big housing companies in Japan. I had no idea they were doing really great stuff, actually, and are really bringing this into the, the core of what they do. So um, there were lots of great examples like that in it. Um, it's very practical, very accessible, um, easy to read in that sense. So um, hopefully we'll hear more from uh, Trista um, about that, or uh, well, the book, but also you know the breaking down the topics in it when she's uh, speaking at the event in May. But uh, would highly recommend yeah. this as a read. 
Yeah, definitely. And Trista has been on the series, but not not recently. I'd love to have her on again. Um, it's always interesting when you talk to authors because while they're writing it, and then once it's released, and then a year later, so much has changed. Yes. Sustainability is changing so fast. She must have loads of new examples. To I'm share, sure right? she does. Sure she does. Yes. Uh, now, Shirley, you had an interesting book, Think Again, with Adam Grant. Yeah, I recently finished this book, and I have nothing but praise for this book. It's 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 an amazing book, very well written. It's very clear, engaging. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's written by Adam Grant, who is like Wharton's top-rated professor for about seven years. So he's an organizational psychologist, and I really love reading psychology books because it like puts you in the mind of people and you can like understand what's going on. I love that. And yeah, it so one of the main things that he talks about in this book is there are three kinds of thinkers in this world. One is like um, prosecutor who are like um, politician. So a politician would just throw his own views on you. A prosecutor would hear, but probably have a um, lot of opinions and not hear you well. A scientist is one who gets your opinion and who rethinks his own opinion, whether he's actually thinking right. And he and there's this rethinking cycle that continues. And then you come to a conclusion which makes more sense. And it's it's a beautiful book. It it he says about how it takes like humility to reconsider what you did in the past, to doubt and to like question your present decisions as well, and to just have curiosity over your future plans. And yeah, this whole book like builds on the theme that the author is a scientist and he thinks like a scientist. And one like practical thing that I receive from this book is um, how you can negotiate or converse well when you are emotional. So like, for example, if you're uh, feeling very emotional and you want to talk to people at the same time, it could be an argument. It could just be something they said that hurt you deeply when they have no idea. So something that helps is to label your emotions. So if you feel angry, don't act angry, but say, oh, I think I'm feeling angry or I think I am spiraling, you know, or just saying that um, I think I am feeling like this, I need some time or, you know, just label it rather than show it because sometimes it takes uh, people just shut down if you uh, act in a certain way. But if you tell them exactly how you feel, they can help you, you know, and yeah. have a better discussion. So that that was something I practically learned from it. So I would recommend that book. Sounds like a great read. Now, Toa, you had a great example from Young One Young World that you wanted to share? Yes. Yeah, so um, this is uh, one of our um, One Young World ambassadors, Urara Takaseki. Um, so Shirley and I uh, both met Urara back in 2018, I think, Shirley. Yes. Um, yeah. She is an incredible young woman, real force of nature. And um, she has started uh, an organization called Unfre, which is a kind of femtech organization looking at addressing period poverty, but also addressing the um, 
reframing how menstruation is viewed and treated um, in Japan and, and beyond as well. So this sort of stemmed from her own experience, um, you know, struggling with menstruation and, and it causing, um, you know, her to, to get very stressed, to uh, miss class or meetings. We've got the cat joining us here. Um, and uh, and she couldn't believe really how many other people, once she started talking to others about her own experience, were, were really struggling with this as well. Um, and how that impacts women's ability um, to uh, sort of just function on a day-to-day -day basis in your work or your studies, whatever it is. And she said, you know, why don't people know about this or talk about this? This is crazy. Um, and you know why are period products not available for free in toilets, for example, so that if your period suddenly starts and you go into a public restroom, there's going to be something there that you can use. And she said, once she started talking to um, some men about this, and they said, oh, but why should it be free um, in a in a public toilet? And she said, well, you know, if you went to a public toilet and you you saw there was no toilet paper or you had to pay for the toilet paper, you'd be a bit shocked, wouldn't you? And the guy, I thought that that put it in context really, really well, actually. Um, so she's looking at sort of using her, her experience in urban planning and infrastructure and how things work to, to look at addressing the issues um, around period poverty as well and making it just a lot less stressful for women to deal with something we deal with every month for a very large part of our lives so just really impressed to see um you know the the impact she's making uh, she's always been one of those people who will make an impact i mean hopefully we'll see her as prime minister one day in the future who knows but um awesome. yeah and it's, it's it's so important to to consider because it's not a it's not a choice no it's not like women are choosing to have periods, so they should choose to use feminine products. It's something that happens to 99.9% .9 of all women, I would say. There's not many women out there who don't have periods. Yep. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about it. Let's make it a human right. Yeah. Um, that you should have sponsorship of it, like toilet paper. What a great example. Yeah, I love that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Sorry to interrupt. I think we have a question. Uh, mm -hmm. Shirley, is this book similar to the Briggs personality profile study? Hmm. Um, not really. I didn't see any <laughs> I didn't see any similarities between those and the book. I think it's it's like it's just a different view of how to rethink what you have decided already and how that's going to help you in the future. I think that's the main like crux of this book. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I do love Briggs personality profiles as well. <laughs> really interesting. I, I studied psychology as an undergrad, so you're, you're really? speaking my language. It's really <laughs> wow. interesting to me. Um, and that was a question from Kyle Russell on YouTube. Thank you so much, Kyle. And the reason I showed one of my cats is also because of Kyle. Thank you. <laughs> you wanted to see the cat. <laughs> oh, so that is our 30 minutes. Thank you all for joining and sharing some of your ideas and insights. I'm really looking forward to our May event. Fingers crossed we can get the venue uh, in Tokyo and go ahead for May 14th is a tentative date. Uh, so please pencil that into your calendar in person in Tokyo, in person in Hiroshima and online. Thank you so much once again, Tova and Shirley. Thank you.